Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Hi, curious minds out there in our ever-expanding radio land. Welcome to CC with BB, connecting with coincidence with Dr. Bernie Biteman, MD. That's me, the only radio show in the world dedicated to the study of coincidences, synchronicity, and serendipity. We are coming to you through the X-Zone Broadcast Network located in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and broadcasting all over the world. Synchronicity spoken here. What is the relationship between mind and brain? Does brain produce consciousness or does the greater consciousness produce the brain? How do mind and brain interact with each other? I'm a psychiatrist. I study this question in my office. I help people with medications and psychotherapy. I work in both the brain and in the mind. You need your mind to recognize the coincidence and your brain to talk about it. Coincidences alert us to the mysterious hiding in plain sight. In other words, coincidence alert, alert us to possible causal connections not recognized by modern science. The phrase connecting with coincidence is my coincidence brand. It is the name of my book, my Psychology Today blog, my website, and my social media sites. To find any and all of them, please put connecting with coincidence in your search engine. Would you like to know how sensitive you are to coincidences? Take the Weird Coincidence Survey on my website. Lives overlap. Lives connect. This is a story about me and our guest today. In the summer of 1968, I stumbled into the cafeteria at Mount Zion Hospital in San Francisco to begin my medical internship. I sat down a little bewildered and looked around. Someone tapped me on the shoulder saying, Hi, my name is Andy Weil and you are sitting in my seat. He was a balding, round-faced guy with a big smile. Excusing myself, I heaped some scrambled eggs onto a plate and sat down somewhere else. 
I was assigned to a neurology rotation. My partner on that rotation was that same Andy Weil. We had a lot of fun following these two private practitioners around, one of whose name was Roy Cocaine. Andy and I became fast friends. A year later, I was doing a psychiatric residency at Stanford and planning for post-residency. I interviewed at the National Institute of Mental Health in Washington for a two-year stint that would, place, would be in place of military service. The night before, I stayed with Andy, who was working at the Institutes of Health at that time. He was writing his first book, The Natural Mind, and was tuning in to the local bees and having some communication with them. In various ways that night altered my consciousness so that when I went for the interview the next day, I performed badly. As a result, I was thankfully denied a position in Washington, D.C. Instead, I found a position at the Public Health Service Hospital in San Francisco for two years there rather than two years in Washington, D.C. That was a life-altering experience and liberating experience greatly influenced by my evening with Dr. Weil. Andy and I saw each other over the years in various places and times. He went to South America searching for alternative approaches to healing. He ended up in Tucson living in a geodesic dome and seeing some patients and completing his first blockbuster book, Spontaneous Healing. The advance allowed him to buy a ranch in the desert. The book came out six months before another one, just like his. Timing is everything. He also discovered that the chairman of internal medicine was a colleague of his from Harvard Medical School, which gave him quick entrance into academia. The ground had been laid by at least two coincidences, the timing of the book coming out and the colleague at the university for an outstanding career in integrative medicine and in medicine in general. I'm delighted to have Andy Weil here as my guest. Welcome to the program, Andy. Thank you, Dr. Bernie. You're welcome, Dr. Weil. I'm going to do a little more blurb about you, and then we'll get, we'll get, to, yap, we'll get to yapping. All right. Andrew Weil was born in Philadelphia in 1942, received an A.B. degree in biology from Harvard in 64 and Harvard Medical School, M.D., in 68. He was at Mount Zion, where I was, wrote his first book at NIMH for The Natural Mind, and then, as I mentioned, was a fellow uh, traveling around the world, uh, North America, South America, Africa, collecting information on drug use in other cultures, medicinal plants, and alternative methods of treating disease. He's the founder of the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine, where he also holds the Lovell Jones Chair, Endowed Chair. He is the editorial director of the popular website, drwild.com and appears in video programs on PBS and other very popular interview programs. He's the co-owner and founder of a growing group of restaurants called True Food Kitchen, a great place to eat if he comes to your town. He's the author of many books, uh, including Spontaneous, The Natural Mind and Spontaneous Healing, and more recently, uh, very importantly, we need to know when alternatives are better and when to let your body heal on its own. It's a great pleasure to have Andy on this program, and in this next in the next segment, we're going to get into some very interesting stuff. Stay with us.
is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back to CC with BB, connecting with coincidence with Dr. Bernie Beitman. Our guest today is Dr. Andrew T. Weil an old friend of mine who I'm delighted to have on this program and in the early part talked about some some of the ways I remembered the coincidences in our lives and some of the coincidences in Andy's professional life. Andy, talk about coincidences in your life for us, would you please? Well, first of all, uh, let me say that I think you and I share a very similar view of coincidences. Uh, the word just means happening together. But I think in popular usage, coincidence is a label that we put on a mental wastebasket in which we drop certain experiences of things happening together, and that means they have no significance. And I've always found coincidences to be hugely significant and uh, see them as kind of guideposts in my path in life. Uh, I've been fascinated by them, and... uh, you know, one experience I think I told you about when you were writing your book that I used to have frequently when I was younger, especially in my teenage years, 20s, and began to fade out in my 30s, and now, you know, rarely if ever, was having a word pop into my head, uh, often in the morning, and, and often a word I didn't know the meaning of. And then hour, within hours, encountering that word in something that I read or overheard, um, one example I can give you, I remember waking up in Tucson one morning, I was in my 30s, and the uh, name Sinn Féin came into my mind, you know, which is the name of the uh, Irish uh, uh, political party, um, and I didn't know, I had no idea what Sinn Féin was, and a few hours later I was driving in Tucson, and on a wall was spray-painted in black paint Sinn Féin. So, mm-hmm. you know, what do you do with that? To me, uh, it, it suggests that there's an interesting relationship between things in our head and things outside our head. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and to me, when I get little experiences like that, it's, it's a kind of a big okay from the universe telling me that I'm, I'm on the right path. You know, this is where you're supposed to be. 
There's something yeah, congruent I, between what's in my head and what's outside. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that's not, that's a kind of a common uh, use of uh, coincidences that otherwise don't seem to have any particular meaning. They're confirming, confirming coincidences. Now, what about the what about more um, substantial ones in, in in the sense of how affecting your life somehow? I mean, I like the one about the, your book coming out six months earlier before another one came out, and the internal medicine chair being a colleague from you at with of yours at Harvard. Well, that was a big one. Um, you know, I I had been teaching at the University of Arizona College of Medicine for a number of years, but I, I just taught students. I didn't have any illusions of. Uh, being more involved with academia, the institution seemed very frozen and monolithic and resistant to change. And uh, so, I, you know, it didn't seem to me it was worth trying to do anything about. And then my best friend from Harvard Medical School, Joe Alpert, a cardiologist, was named chief of medicine. And he came with a new dean, uh, Jim Dolan, also a cardiologist. They came from the University of Massachusetts. And uh, I had dinner with Joe when he got there, and he said, well, now that you have friends in high places, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd like to change all of medicine. And, uh, you know, that led to the creation of the what became the Center for Integrative Medicine, which is now a big center of excellence. And that would never have happened without that, uh, you know, without that coincidence. So that's never. one that had great, great practical meaning. And, and and that's taking the uh, the word coincidence uh, uh, experiences you have to another level where it's not just confirming in your own mind that you're doing the right thing. It's actually opening up a path for you. Exactly. And sometimes uh, coincidences that I've experienced have looped back into the past and made sense of things. And there's the the grand one that I told you that you used yeah, to Yeah, you love that one because that cheesecake so, is so still in your mind. I can almost taste you tasting that cheesecake. So can I tell that story? <laughs> you can tell that story. <laughs> so um, years ago, this was in the early 1970s, I was living in South America, and I was doing research on medicinal plants and altered states of consciousness. And I went there under the direction of uh, Dick Schultes, who was the head of the Harvard Botanical Museum and my mentor, and he had urged me to go to southwestern Colombia to an area that um, you know, was the beginning of the Amazon forest called the Sibindoy. And to get there, uh, I went through a provincial capital called Pasto um, near the border of Ecuador. This is a very beautiful area of Colombia. It's uh, volcanic and all green. And the inhabitants of that city called Pastusos are the hillbillies of Colombia. There are lots of jokes about them. And I went down there first with Schultes, who said, there's only one hotel to stay at in this, in this place. He said, you know, all the rest are dumps. It was a hotel called the Hotel Pacifico. It was run by two elderly German ladies who looked to me like they were in their 70s and talked to each other in German. And they were trying to run the place like a European hotel in this incredible, you know, provincial outpost in Colombia, which is heavily Indian population. And uh, they had, a, on the second floor, there was a tea room. Uh, I used to go use that as a base, and I'd go off in the jungle and come back looking really disheveled <laughs> and a poncho and tangled, my beard tangled, and they would look at me askance, but I'd clean up and come yes. down to the tea room and have yes. tea, herb tea. And they, and they made an incredibly delicious cheesecake, which resembled a cheesecake that my grandmother made, my father's mother, who was of German... Uh, Jewish descent. And these ladies reminded me of 
of that part of my family. Was it made and out I, of cream? Was, was it made out of cream cheese? Partly? No, it wasn't made. It wasn't a cream. It was a drier, drier cake made out of a fresh cheese. Actually, they made it themselves. It's something like uh, wow. the European cheese called Quark in in uh, Germany. That's that. It's like that. It's kind of like a farmer's cheese. Uh-huh. So it's drier, crumblier. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, to me, sitting in that room uh, was so comforting because I was in this far off place. You know, this was very difficult to make telephone calls. Letters took weeks to get there in the 1970s. I felt really far from home um, and sometimes very homesick. And I got this great sense of comfort being in that room with those ladies and that cheesecake. And I would wonder, you know, what what their story could be. How did they end up here? You know, I, I had the thought that maybe they were Jewish refugees from Germany. Yeah. But how they ended up in Pasto, I had no idea. And they were... Uh, you know, one time there was a student revolution that broke out and students were marching and screaming in the streets and they would sort of look down and go, tisk tisk, you know, that's not how people should do things. And they were trying to maintain this little enclave of European order, you know, in this very weird place. So I was there many times and it made a very strong impression on me, eating the cheesecake, drinking herb tea, being there, very powerful. Years later, it must have been, let me see, that was in the 1970s, so this would now be like at least 30 years later, um, maybe more, 35. Uh, the Center for Integrative Medicine was up and running. We were having regular classes of physician fellows coming in for two-year fellowships, and uh, there was an incoming class of about 60 uh, physicians, and there was a dinner, a welcome dinner for a group of them, and I was told that there was a woman in the class from Columbia. So I sought her out and sat with her. She was a psychiatric resident uh, resident in, from Philadelphia, <coughs> from Bogota. So I started talking to her in Spanish. And uh, I told her I'd spent a lot of time in Colombia. She asked where, and I said, well, all over. I was, you know, all over the country. And I named some areas that I'd been in, and I mentioned the city of Pasto. And she suddenly looked up and she said, Hotel Pacifico? And I said, yes. Well, it turned out one of the old ladies was her great-grandmother, and the other was her great-aunt. And uh, they were indeed refugees from Nazi Germany who had gotten to South America. They couldn't get into North America. There's a long story about how they ended up in Pasto. They ran the hotel. She had been there as a very little girl and met them. She immediately called her family in Bogota, who were just totally excited about this, and were they had the recipe for the cheesecake in their family, ah, ah, and they talked mm. about trying to FedEx one up to me <laughs> in Tucson, which they couldn't figure out how to do. But about a year later, uh, I was invited to give a plenary talk to the American Academy of Family Physicians. It was a huge meeting in Philadelphia of, I think, 6,000 physicians, and uh, she arranged, she had made the cheesecake, sent it to my hotel room uh, in Philadelphia, and she brought it in. I sat there. I tasted a bite of it. I was instantly transported back uh, to this. I mean, so here's something that looped into the past and linked past and present. And again, it was such a feeling of all rightness that, yes, this uh, is exactly how things were supposed to be. Uh, 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 <laughs> um, is, Delicious. Is it- is it, does it have a kind of a medium brown crust? Yes. Yeah, my mother made something like that, too. Aha. Uh, uh-huh. My mother made something like that, too. Uh, that was her regular cheesecake, the, the sour cream uh, 
cheese Yeah, that's one. a New York cheesecake. That's a really, really rich one. Really rich one. She made that sometimes, but there was the, yeah. that was the standard one for her. Good, good, good. <laughs> what? Yes, good, good, good. What? Uh, when? When? That woman showed up for uh, one of your uh, classes at, in Tucson. What made you go over to her? What you heard she was from Colombia? Well, was that I, a- I, had, I lived in Colombia for almost three years and had a very strong connection with that country. Ah. So, you know, whenever I had a chance to meet someone from Colombia, I would like to talk to them about it. Okay, okay. So it's a pretty standard thing for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I I love the story of your communicating with the bees back when I visited you uh, in D.C. Um, how, how has that influenced you since then? Well, actually, I've had a lot of experiences with insects, you know, in the course of my life. Uh, I think this started with um, I grew up in a city in Philadelphia, and I did not get to spend much time in nature. And I was very much afraid of bees and wasps and um in uh you know when my life began to change around the time you met me um in the washington area i was taking a lot of psychedelics having interesting experiences and in the course of that i really was able to relax and drop my fear of bees and wasps let them land on me observe them find beauty in them and what i found was as i did that that their behavior changed toward me and that you know they were never aggressive and i would sit, often be in groups with people where you know a wasp would come by and people sort of cringe and duck or try to swat it and uh you know and, and the the wasp would continually tr- come back and trying to annoy them whereas you know they would leave me alone and i and it just there was some connection there between what was inside me and what was outside me so uh, I'll tell you one, here's one story. Uh, I had overheard someone once, I think I was working in a food co-op somewhere in Tucson, and I heard some guy talk about petting bumblebees. And that uh-huh. sounded great to me. So I tried to pet bumblebees, but bumblebees don't want to be petted. You know, they're really busy doing things, and <laughs> they didn't want to hold still. Uh, and one day I was in a canyon outside of Tucson, I think I had taken MDMA, and I was in a very relaxed state, you know, lying on a, on a rock. It was a beautiful spring day. The canyon was running, and my mouth was dry. I had an orange with me, so I o- opened it, and I ate a segment of the orange, and uh, some of the juice dripped in my hand. A bumblebee came down, landed in my hand. I'd never had one land on me before, and began to lap this juice. And so I brought it really close to my face and was looking at it, and then it got it got into an altered state itself. Maybe it was a little drunk on the orange juice, uh, but it just stayed there. And I got to pet the bumblebee quite ah. extensively, and it ah. seemed to like it very much. It, ah. it allowed me to do it. It stayed there, you know. Eventually, flew off. Um, here's another we're, one. We're, uh, we're, I, we're, we're about to come to end, the end of this okay, segment, so, so we can continue with that in the next segment. We will yes. back. We will be back with Dr. Weil after a short break. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. 
For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Welcome back to CC with BB, connecting with coincidence with Dr. Bernie Beitman. That's me. My old friend Andy Weil is out here in our radio land buzzing around with bumblebees and other insects telling us wonderful stories. Andy, what's the next story about you and insects? Well, this is, I think, even more interesting because it, it, it has shaped some of my medical philosophy and oh. work with patients. I had a very intense reaction to mosquito bites growing up. And I was the person that mosquitoes would always single out in a group. And when I got bitten, you know, I'd get welts that itched and for days, really annoying. Uh, so I always tried, obviously tried to avoid mosquitoes and, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was bad. Somewhere in my, I don't know when this was, late 40s, I think, this it changed. Now, I don't know why it changed. I, you know, maybe, uh, who knows, uh, my diet was different, my lifestyle was different, but suddenly I became less attractive to mosquitoes. Huh. And what interests me is that as that happened, coincidentally, my reactions to them subsided. And now I get bitten very rarely. If I do get bitten, I have like a brief period of itching and the bite disappears. And, uh, you know, I'm no longer, like, terrified of being around them. You know, I shoo them away. I mean, I use repellent if it's in a really dense area. But it's not a big thing. But what interests me is the coincidence between my allergic reaction to the bites and my attractiveness to the mosquitoes. There's, there are a number of factors that influence attractiveness to mosquitoes. Blood type is one. I'm blood type A, which is supposed to be least attractive, but that didn't help me earlier in my life. Uh, you know, people that exhale more carbon dioxide may attract mosquitoes more, but I don't think that's changed in my life. But I don't know which came first. I don't know which is cause and which is effect, but they're linked. And uh, this makes me think that allergies, autoimmunity, you know, other conditions like that, there is a linkage between something in our consciousness and something externally. And that offers the possibility of, of uh, changing things. So, you know, this is one reason why I send many patients uh, with conditions like that and other conditions to mind-body therapists, to hypnotherapists, to visualization therapists, guided imagery practitioners, and I often see very good results with that. I think, you know, we can change things externally or things, you know, by changing things internally. Yeah. Uh, the the nature, the nature idea, um, I have gotten more into communicating with trees uh, I love I love walking in the woods near here, and there's a pair of trees uh, in the, uh, my usual walking place in a place called Mint Springs that I call the king and the queen. Mm-hmm. And I stand in front of them uh, each time I go up there, um, and I talk to each one of them. Sometimes bow down to them. Sometimes they don't. I do, and then sometimes bowing down is kind of automatic. I I just don't <laughs> think about it. And they tell me things, some, much of which I I don't remember, uh, but seems to influence me. Uh, my favorite one recently was was the king talking to me, saying, and laughing. So you want to be a rock and roll star? He, he said. <laughs> 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 <That's great. laughs> I, I live on a, 
uh, I'm talking to you from an island in British Columbia where I spend the summers, and I'm in a, a forest. It's a mature second-growth forest. Most of the trees are about 100 years old, but they've left. There are a few of the old-growth trees that were not logged back in the 1920s, and uh, one of them is an enormous uh, old-growth western cedar, um, you know, a real giant. And when I walk past that, you know, I, I feel its energy field. Yeah. And often I sort of put my palms on it, yeah. and and I can really feel that energy. I mean, this is this is a powerful being that's yes. rooted in the earth. It's seen a lot of stuff. It knows how to survive. I try to draw on its on its strength. Yes. Yes, um, I think I, I, I am finding that um, hugging certain trees, that old people make fun of tree huggers. Uh-huh, uh, you're but a tree hugger. <laughs> I'm a tree hugger. So I have this, this one tree a friend of mine came up there with me once and said, try this tree. It was a skinny little thing with a branch that had two mm-hmm. trunks on it. And she said, try this one. And each time I go there, I try this one. And the last time I was there, uh, I have had some PVCs for various reasons. And they kind of, they're, they're irritating um, they're annoying. But I, I don't like it. So I put, I put my heart against the tree and... Uh, and the and my uh, my body relaxed and my heart felt better and I said how come you're doing this you're taking my uh, negative energy and transforming it and the tree says we take your carbon dioxide and make huh. food out of it huh. <laughs> you, idiot. <laughs> you idiot you <laughs> idiot sometimes you just yes um, I want to want to get maybe a little more uh, well. You, you you did a book a long time ago, uh, edited one on consciousness studies. Uh, I'm now involved with the division of perceptual studies where we're thinking more about how consciousness supersedes uh, physical reality. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a huge uh, Copernican shift uh, that we're, I think we're facing in, in modern science, which, of course, modern science is resisting a great deal. And you're on a kind of an edge of this. I don't hear you talk much about consciousness or read much of yours about consciousness anymore, but I know you're thinking about it. Actually, I, I do, uh, Bernie. Uh, you know, uh, one of my... My strongest beliefs in, in my book, Healthy Aging, at the end, I, I wrote out my ethical will, which is, you know, the sort of uh, things that I'd like to share with people on, on a, of a non-material sort. And one of the strong statements in there is that I believe that consciousness is primary and that it, it, it has influences the evolution of matter. Um, and this is at, totally at odds with the materialistic view that consciousness is an epiphenomenon, something that arises out of the biochemistry and electrical activity of the brain, that the brain is primary, consciousness is secondary. That has been the strongly dominant view in yes. science and medicine. Yes. But as you say, there is another, uh, you know, we're seeing the beginnings of a paradigm shift there. But I got into a terrific argument with a, uh, a friend of mine, former neighbor, he's a very senior, now 92, uh, he was a, an academic uh, dean, endocrinologist, who's now writing a book about mystical experience, having never had a mystical experience, and Wonderful. arguing that this is entirely something that comes from certain regions of the brain. And he he looks at me as if I'm someone from another planet that he you can't may imagine be. how hey, anybody may be. <laughs> well, you may be. <laughs> I may be. But he can't imagine how anyone could believe that consciousness existed before matter. 
but to me, this is it is consciousness that has directed the uh, the evolution of matter into more and more elaborate forms that are becoming more and more self-aware. A teleological, purposeful consciousness is what you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the repeated ideas of consciousness is that our awareness, our consciousness is being created so that the bigger consciousness can see itself. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And maybe we, maybe the, you know, one, the circularity of all this is that eventually we will evolve to the point that we see that we have created ourselves. Yeah. Well, it's getting towards the end of uh, of childhood's end, um, where the, yep. the kids just danced around and spun off into the cosmos. And that image stays with me, um, and that's what you're beginning to describe. Where, I am of the opinion that the study of coincidences, the careful study of coincidences, can poke holes in the veils of Maya that surround us and let us peer into a reality beyond this 3D reality. What do you think of that idea? I couldn't agree with you more. I think that this is why I say that the conventional view of coincidences as having no meaning is so um, unhelpful, because yes. I think if you see them for what they are, they're great clues to the yes. interconnectedness of everything. Yes. And so I'm, I'm developing the idea that coincidence awareness can be another spiritual path. I like that. I have not heard anybody enunciate that so clearly. I think that's a very useful concept. And uh, good. I'm I'm trying to be able to now elaborate uh, on that idea. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you about another crazy thing um, about uh, intuitive voices, where people just don't feel an urge, uh, but actually think they hear a voice telling them to do something. And a little bit of a story of that, uh, I just read recently, a woman keeps hearing a voice saying, there's something wrong, you've got to do something about it. And there's more to it, And but she goes to a psychiatrist, they call her psychotic, they give her pills, doesn't do anything. And then the voice gets a little more um, specific and said, you've got to go to the hospital now, and you've got to have your brain examined. And she goes to the hospital and they say, no, 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 there's no problem, your, your, your neurological is normal. But they finally do it, and they find a very large tumor uh, which is operable um, and uh, they're able to get it out and she's okay I I'm sure you hear many stories like that is that right I do and uh, you know I don't know whether this is whether this comes in on the auditory channel or some other channel yeah. intuition has been called the still small voice yes but some people may get this as a feeling yes um, you know I, I think everybody is intuitive everyone has that potential, but I think uh, not many people cultivate it, and I think our educational system actually, uh, you know, discourages us from paying attention to that and instead relying on objective uh, external data. I am, I, I'm seeing uh, several young women in therapy now, and uh, I'm amazed uh, at how rational they are, They're, that mm. being in touch with their own feelings is quite distant from them, and that's what I'm having to try to do, but it's been a consistent pattern, so that young women, who I like to think were in touch with their emotions, are getting squeezed away from them by the pressure of uh, this, this uh, thinking. Huh, you know, in medicine also, uh, over my career, I've met uh, some doctors who were really brilliant diagnosticians, and I think they were all, whether they would admit it or not, highly intuitive, uh, and they would sense things about yeah. patients and put that together with objective data. Yeah. Um, 
and and I think that's a really important thing to cultivate. But as I said, the whole trend is, you know, you look at objective data, you know, readings, test results, and you don't pay attention to those intuitive feelings. Do you have a formal way of helping uh, your students uh, get in touch with their intuitive potentials? I think there's lots of ways to do that. One is to anything that <coughs> opens up channels to the unconscious, whether it's meditation. You know, obviously, in my path, uh, use of psychedelic drugs has been important. Uh, cultivating imagination, um, talking about it, you know, expressing the feelings that you have, and then testing. I think what you have to do is test, to test your intuitive yes. awareness uh, so you get a sense of whether it's accurate or not. Uh, on that one, uh, I, I've someone told me this, and I kind of knew it, uh, but it's clearer now, that sometimes uh, we create an intuitive voice to confirm a decision we'd like to make, but like to uh-huh. say uh-huh. the intuition is doing it, but it's really us making it happen so that we can think our intuition is guiding us. Huh, interesting. One, one area where, you know, I think we all experience this is when we say we feel attracted to a person or we feel chemistry with a person. Uh, and what do you do with that? I mean, do you pursue that? Do you see if there's anything there or not? Um, it, it, other, in other cases, you don't want to be around someone or you don't want to be in a particular place, and you can't articulate exactly why. It's just a feeling that you get. Well, uh, in the next segment, we're gonna, I, I want to talk with you about interpersonal energy uh, and how that waxes and wanes and how what you're talking about, feeling something positive with someone um, can happen, I think, as a product of the energy that person is putting out in your direction. One of my patients just put out lots of energy and attracted real good athletes at the University of Virginia. It was amazing. Not that attractive, but a very powerful energy source. And I was able to point it out to her, and she could use it better. But we will end that now, and then the segment now, and we'll be back with Dr. Weil in just a little while. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365.
Welcome back to CC with BB. We're talking about coincidences and other things with Dr. Andrew Weil. Andy, it's such a pleasure talking with you. Let's go to interpersonal energy, intuitive healing, um, and let's see what you do with my saying these two terms to you uh, and see what you do with them. Okay, what are the terms? Interpersonal energy and intuitive healing, not just picking up diagnoses, but actually people who can lay on the uh-huh. hands in some form or another, even at a distance. There's a guy named Bill Bengstrom who gets talked about here. Yep, and uh, yep. You know him. All right. Yeah, well, first of all, with interpersonal energy. So obviously, uh, you know, when we're with another person, we share their energy. We share energy fields. We can feel that. You know, it's something like... Uh, uh, tuning forks that resonate with each other. Um, and I think that can either be positive or negative. Uh, but I think being aware of that is very important. And in medical interactions, I think this is, uh, you know, uh, uh, physicians can really take advantage of this by, um, uh, in, 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 on as many channels as possible, uh, giving suggestions that healing is possible. Um, I have had so many patients tell me that the most important thing that I did for them was to tell them that they could get better, that I was the only doctor they had been with who told them that they could better. And it wasn't just my words. It was my it was on an energetic level as well. Ah, so important. I love that story about the, the hexing of a person with multiple sclerosis. Yep. Uh, that, uh, that stuck in my head. Why don't you tell that one as, as the opposite <laughs> well, that's version? that's an extreme example of the opposite thing. I had a, a woman, middle-aged woman, come to me from Finland who had uh, early MS, and she'd come to Tucson uh, for the winter. First of all, just imagine the benefits of coming to Tucson for the winter from Finland. Uh, but she said, you know, I, I got her, she, she stayed at a resort in Tucson. She was doing a lot of things for her uh, self-care and, and improving her lifestyle, and she was really feeling better. And uh, one time when I saw her, she was finally able to laugh, and she said, you know, you wouldn't believe what those doctors did to me in Finland. She said the chief of neurology at uh, a medical institution, uh, when he had told her the diagnosis, she was having, like, weakness and, uh, you know, and some numbness, and I told her, uh, he, they, he told her that it was MS. He said, wait a minute. He went out and brought a wheelchair in and told her to sit in it. And she said, why should I sit in a wheelchair? And he said he wanted her to buy a wheelchair and sit in it for a half hour a day to practice for the time when she would be disabled. It's so horrible. <laughs> I mean, that's extreme. Let's turn that. Let's turn that around to the positives. That when I tr- tell somebody that they've got the ability to get better, I am not just saying the words. I am imagining it with my mind and my heart. Okay, so that's you're doing that on an energetic level. This is what I mean that you're you're sharing this. On, on lots of channels, not just the verbal channel, that you're communicating your belief uh, that this person can be better. And that is a very powerful influence, especially coming from a medically trained person, because patients have a lot of projection of belief onto physicians, as people in tribal cultures do on shamans. And we can take advantage of that by reflecting that belief back in a positive way. Yes. Bill Bengstrom. What do you what do you know about what he's doing? And well, do I don't know a lot about him specifically, but I have known other medical intuitives, and I've yeah. known doctors who work with them, and I've seen some very striking uh, examples of their being correct. You know, where they had very little data to work with about a patient at a distance, uh, and were able to 
come up with uh, you know very close approximations of of diagnoses that helped physicians do appropriate tests to confirm them. And what uh, what Bill is about is uh, being able to cure cancer in mice, and also oh. in some. Oh, I don't know about that. And also in uh, the stories of, of children with inoperable uh, tumors that he has helped uh-huh. reduce. And uh, they're studying about how he does it. And the best they came up with, at least uh, I heard yesterday, is not that he sends out any energy. They can't pick it up if he is. But somehow he sends out information, which I'd like to know what they mean, energy without information, information without energy. Uh-huh. It's a tough thing for me. But what they think he does somehow is activate the self-healing capacity of the patient. Uh-huh, interesting. I can say... Go ahead. I'm a great believer in self-healing and oh, yes. the uh, you know, incredible potential of the body to regulate itself. Yes. Also, another area where I observe this is with plants. Uh, yes. I have yeah. a very strong connection with plants, as you do with trees. I have a lot of house plants. I, uh, plants do well around me, and people always marvel at my ability. To, you know, some of this is paying attention yes. to the needs of plants. I often go into people's houses... And and plants call me. They draw my attention, you know. And I'll see a, a you know, a cactus that, uh, coming from the desert where I'm very familiar with cactus. And they have a cactus that looks just so, it, it is just so unhappy. And I uh-huh. say, when did you last water it? And they said, oh, you know, the cactus don't need much water. I watered it like two months ago. Uh, or I was in the house of someone in Chicago. They had an enormous. Uh, rubber plant that was you know almost reaching the ceiling and it looked it was just in very sad shape and i said you know it's it needs a big a much bigger container and it was a big job to do that but they put it in another container and they couldn't believe how that plant grew and thrived and they thanked me so much but you know it was just they hadn't heard they weren't listening to it yeah I've got I've I've have I've have had an avocado plant in my in Oh, my... I remember your avocado. <laughs> Good. Well, now I've got 10 of them growing in the <laughs> sunroom of my house. Oh. And, and they are characters. They are huh. characters. I mean, they there's one of them that is just weird. Uh I it's just gotten really tall and gangly for some reason after not doing anything. I don't know. But I was I, I was standing in front of the uh, six of them uh looking yeah. at them in between the sun where they're getting the sun and them and they said you're you're our god wow wow and i said yeah and because i give them water and i give plant food but i got to feel what they meant by that and i have had a better sense about what a larger version of god might be like oh that's neat oh i remember your original avocado you always (laughs) had a way with them always had a way with them (laughs) you should see these characters (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I've run out of questions for now, Andy. Um, and I just had let I just want to hear you talk about plants and coincidences and whatever else you want to what comes to your mind. Well, uh, all I you know to me the most important thing is the, the most important ideas we've talked about are the primary nature of consciousness, um, how the state of your individual con- consciousness influences the external world around you, um, not only in determining what you perceive, but how things behave toward you. And that you if, you, if there's something out there that you don't like, you can change it by changing things in your head. Uh, you know, I, I just have been writing some of these things down. And, uh, you know, an obvious example, I've, I've, I'm a dog person. I've had dogs all my life. 
And I think anyone you know who is around dogs knows that they're very sensitive to um, people's energy, emotional states, and so forth. Oh yeah. Uh, and and uh, you know, just one example. I had a. I have always had Rhodesian Ridgebacks. I had a a big male named Jombo. Must have been 120 pounds. And uh, a very lovable dog. I mean, he 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 like he he would still at 120 pounds try to climb in my lap and, <laughs> uh, and cuddle. And one day I came home. I was living in a ranch outside of Tucson. I came home and there was a a worker on the property who was cowering. Uh, he had, was brandishing a rake oh. and cowering, and the dog was standing like several feet from him, ears back, hair raised barking, mm-hmm. snarling furiously. Uh, you know, I called the dog off. Uh, there was no way of convincing this guy that it was his fear that was prov- yeah. provoking that response. Yeah. And yeah, that, yeah. you know, he thought I had a vicious attack dog. There was no way of convincing him that the dog was not trained to be aggressive and act that way and could not see the connection between what was in his head and the dog's behavior. So that's an obvious example. You know, we can all see things like that. You know, I've given you these stories about insects, but I think it's, it extends way beyond that, that, that how our experience of the external world is shaped by our expectations of it, our unconscious uh, ideas about it, our energy, uh, all of that. And those are things that we can change. Uh, I use that uh, the analogy of um, the, your dog and the guy with the rake when, when people are afraid of something in their own head by giving it by being afraid of it you help energize it and help it stay around and be able to scare you exactly okay I'll tell you one other story about an animal good uh, and this is also from that time that I lived on this uh, ranch outside of Tucson uh, one morning, a, uh, uh, a friend of mine, Juan, who, who worked on the property, uh, got me out of my office and said to come look that there was a baby owl on the ground. And uh, I went out, and at the base of a huge cottonwood tree by a stream, there was a, a very baby owl. It was covered in white down. It was about maybe three, three inches high. Um, it was popping on the ground peeping with distress, uh, and way up above, it must have been, oh, I don't know, 25 feet above on a big limb of this cottonwood tree, there was a huge ragged nest with a great horned owl in it, um, obviously the mother, and there was a, a slightly larger uh, owlet beside her that was looking down, and it's possible that that one had pushed this one out. That's not that common. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. There was a uh, there was a male flying around in the sky above them. So you know, I didn't know what to do. I picked it up, which maybe I shouldn't have, uh, and then I tried offering it some canned dog food, which it didn't want, and then I got a dropper of uh, sugar water, which it drank, uh, but I didn't know what to do with it. So I called the um, biology department. We just have 20 seconds left, Andy. I'm sorry. Okay, I got no help there. Anyway, I got a guy that said you should put it back in the nest. Uh, That's not an easy process. Great horned owls were aggressive. I climbed up. The mother owl locked eyes with me. She never made an aggressive move. I got up level with her, put the baby back in the nest. She knew my intention. Good. Wonderful, wonderful. Andy, beautiful talking with you. Great stories. And good work, Bernie. Keep it up. Thank you, Andy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.